You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In this episode, we talk about a 1959 paper by Raya Dunyevskaya entitled Nationalism, Communism, Marxist Humanism, and the Afro-Asian Revolutions. In this paper, Dunyevskaya is talking about the liberatory potential of the anti-colonial revolutions of the 50s, but also the dangers and difficulties that these revolutionaries faced. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So we're recording this current event section on Wednesday, April 14th. We're going to be talking about the Derek Chauvin trial uh, for the killing of George Floyd that's been in the media a lot here in the U.S., as well as the killing a few days ago of a young man just 10 miles, I think, away from where the trial was happening named Dante Wright. And uh, the media reports this morning is that the police officer who killed him is is going to be um, charged with manslaughter. Uh, joining us for this current event section is, again, Angela Clard, of, uh, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. A- and you've been following um, the Chauvin trial pretty closely. So do you want to give us some of your initial impressions? Sure. It's been fascinating to me. Uh, although it's very slow, and I don't know that anyone, you know, wants to watch the whole thing. But uh, it's been very slow because the prosecution is being exceedingly careful and putting in everything that they could possibly put in uh, to be sure that they get a conviction on some charge. It's uh, clear to me that the state has put a lot of resources into this trial because they're very fearful of what the black community will do if there's no conviction on any of the three charges that they're trying. So they're trying to make an airtight case. Of course, it should be a simple airtight case because the whole world saw the defendant, <clears throat> whose name I don't like to mention, I'll say the name of the victims, not the defendant. The whole world saw the defendant Um, strangling with his knee uh, Mr. Floyd until he was dead but as I say they're not only the state of Minnesota but every other state in the nation I'm sure is terrified that there will be riots in the streets and a lot of repercussions if the defendant is let off for this horrendous crime as um, people may or may not know the defense only needs one juror to refuse to convict, and there's no conviction. One juror can cause a mistrial, in which case the state has to decide whether to start all over again in a new trial. But the standard for conviction is not that complex. It's just that there can't be a reasonable doubt as to his guilt. But there can be all the obfuscation and confusion in the world. So defendant's case, which they're on now, he's just trying to place some doubt in the jurors' minds. He only needs one juror 
to say they're not sure. There could be reasonable doubt here. And he's, they're doing that mainly by talking about the other conditions that Mr. Floyd had that might have been fatal anyway in other circumstances. Had a heart condition, he had a drug problem, but it's ridiculous in this case because the knee on the neck doesn't have to be the only cause of death, but it has to be contributing cause of death. And every single witness has said that it was either the, the main cause or one of the causes or contributing cause. It, it, you can't cut off somebody's air for all that time and not kill them. So that's basically what's been going on. What's made it so interesting, particularly in the beginning, was they had his girlfriend testify and they had the passers-by who were standing around watching testify. And each of them had a, had a heart-wrenching story, either because they knew him or just because they watched this hein heinous crime and were not able to intervene and do anything. And some of them are still feeling guilty that they should have done more when, um, you know, there were three cops holding uh, Floyd down and there was one cop just standing there glowering at the bystanders and forcing them back onto the curb if they got off. So there was, there was no way they could rush uh, Chauvin and try to get him off Floyd without getting shot themselves. Yeah, that's the other aspect of the defense that is particularly galling, particularly racist. Not only are they saying that George Floyd had these uh, medical conditions and behaviors that supposedly contributed to his death, uh, they allege, but the, the, the cops were being distracted by this angry, mostly black mob. It wasn't all black. But again and again and again, the defense keeps bringing up this thing about the the crowd being angry and witnesses come on the stand who were there and, you know, did this make you angry? And, and kind of like all of these very standard racist tropes are being brought right into the case. It's one thing what the law says the standard of proof is, but it's something different when you've got, you know, like a Blue Lives Matter or, or All Lives Matter, supposedly, person on, on the jury. And I, I believe there is one. Their, their standards of everything are, are quite different. So nobody that I'm hearing is very confident that the, they're going to get a conviction just because of the, the record, long, long record in these kinds of cases. Well, it's very, very hard to get a conviction in this kind of case because um, the slightest bit of doubt about anything uh, can, can kill the conviction. But I agree, of course, that it's the racism that's behind everything, that there wouldn't be these kinds of de uh, defenses that they're putting on. They wouldn't even have a tiniest possibility of succeeding. Uh, were it not a, a white cop and a black person who was killed. Only in America would a deceased black man be on trial for his drug use uh, more than the cop is on trial for his murder in his murder case. They've just gone on and on about his drug use. Uh, but what's important about this 
trial, among other things, is that the so-called blue wall of silence in which cops are supposed to never testify at each other, that has been busted down in a big way because the main witnesses for the prosecution are police people themselves, high-placed police people who were his bosses, his trainers, his, his buddies. They're all in this um, plan that the prosecution is carrying out to convince the jury, convince the world, I should say, that the defendant and the other three cops were just the rotten apples of the police force. They're not your typical police. They're just the bad guys, and we do want to weed them out, and then everything will be fine, and it's extremely important to the maintenance of the U.S. order of state and capitalism that this myth persist that the police are uh, just there trying to take care of everybody and uh, they're fair and honest and they can relate to anyone um, when it's so obvious that the police are the guardian of the racist capitalist order and that's what they're doing there and they're trying to terrorize the black community so that it won't revolt it couldn't be more obvious in in this when you watch the trial. Uh, so it's good that there's no longer the inevitability of being unable to convict because of the blue wall of silence is, is down. But it still goes on most places most of the time. And more to the point, um, the killing's still going on. Uh, the fact that Dante Wright was shot for absolutely nothing 10 miles away from where George Floyd was killed just a couple of days ago. It sort of boggles the mind and it, it was not a rookie cop, uh, it was a veteran cop and she claims that she just made a mistake and she meant to taser him and instead she shot him. Well, extremely hard for cops to mistake their taser gun for a real gun. They're, they're worn on different sides of the body. They look and feel completely different. Um, you have to be in some kind of, a, uh, I think, a racist panic that a 26-year veteran should not succumb to, um, to to make a mistake like that. So if it was a mistake, it was a mistake rooted in the racism that permeates the whole police culture and all the police together. And it, these killings just go on and on. And I don't know how long people are going to take it. To, to go back to the, the George Floyd uh, prosecution and, and the strategy, I mean, Anna's right. I mean, police witness after police witness, the chief of police of Minneapolis, the most senior member of the force, uh, so forth and so on. They all get up there and say, oh, no, what, what Chauvin did was just beyond the bounds. This is not permitted, blah, 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 blah. What everybody knows is that there's one thing that's in, written down and, you know, in the training, and then there's the, the on-the-job training, and they're completely different, and that's policing in the United States, right? So they're saving their own skins, they're, they're saving their own reputation, and a lot of activists in support of Black Lives are, are kind of upset at this kind of prosecution that puts one person instead of the system and the systemic racism on, on trial. I mean, I understand that, you know, you'd want this to be a teaching moment and, 
you know, you want a conviction to be a conviction of policing, of racism, and so forth. The problem is, as long as you're dealing with the U.S. legal justice system, it doesn't work like that. What, what you got to do is satisfy the most difficult juror to satisfy. And, and given those conditions, yeah, I, I think it's they've got to go with the, the kind of strategy that they're, they're, they're going with, which is the, the one bad apple and the cops are okay and it's just this person not. I think everybody, when it comes down to it, if, if, if there's a conviction, that will be seen as, as a victory and that is going to be putting the cops on warning. And if there is, you know, a mistrial or, God forbid, a acquittal, that's going to be a major defeat. So I think that that's the calculus that we got to look at there. Well, and you can't, there's no way to predict because we don't know these jurors. I mean, there could be one kooky one. There could be one who just hates uh, the authority so much that they won't do what the, the judge instructs in terms of measuring the proof against the legal standard. There's no way of knowing. But it is clear that if there's not a conviction, all hell will break loose because um, not only of this uh, nearby case of Dante Wright in in uh, Brooklyn Center, but there have been a number of other killings lately. There appears to be no abatement in the cops' killings as a result of everything that's happened since George Floyd was killed. I mean, what worries me the most is, let's say that there is uh, an acquittal and rebellions break out everywhere. What then? The, the, the problem is that white America, I mean, this, despite the, the mass support for BLM, after George Floyd was, was murdered and you've, you've got the demonstrations, there was an uptick of support, but the Republicans and Trump, and, and they've done a really good number of scaring people once more. So what the protests do is basically make it a question of policing is rotten to its core in the United States. It's a systemic problem of racism that is built into what they do there to keep the black community and other similar communities down. And at that point, white America has to choose, and they always choose the cops. We want the cops to keep us safe. You know, BLM is not going to keep us safe. And, and I, th- I think this is the problem that the movement faces, despite all of the talk of defunding the police and uh, the reimagining policing. And former President Obama came out yesterday and talked about reimagining policing. N- nobody has a viable alternative within bourgeois society. The only viable alternative, you know, is, is for communities uh, to p- control themselves, to take all of this kind of force out of the hands of, of, of these thugs. But nobody wants to say that. Nobody really wants to do that. There have been examples of, of like self-defense of the black community in the past, uh, late 60s, early 70s. But for some reason, you know, nobody wants to go there now. So that we, we just get a bunch of abstractions about reimagining policing and so forth. But if, if there is not a viable alternative to the present system, People are just going to think, well, you know, if there's an intruder, who's there to help me? And I, I think the movement has to, 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 to grapple with this issue that when push comes to shove, if there is no alternative, white America is going to side with the cops when, 
you know, at that moment. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, Andrew and I will be discussing Raya Dunevskaya's pamphlet, Afro-Asian Revolutions. So today we're taking a look at a pamphlet by Raya Dunevskaya from August of 1959 entitled Nationalism, Communism, Marxist Humanism, and the Afro-Asian Revolutions. It first appeared not in the form of a pamphlet, but as a supplement to the issue of her newspaper that came out in June-July 1959. What we're working from is an expansion of the 1961 edition, which was published by uh, the left group of the Cambridge University Labor Club in England, uh, with a foreword by Peter Cadogan, uh, a new introduction, and other materials. So, Andrew, when we were choosing something from Dunia Sky's work to talk about for the podcast, you thought this would be something that would have some contemporary relevance. The reason I think it's relevant, I, I, I think the main questions she's concerned with are still at work today, but in a different form. I mean, what she was dealing with there was uh, Third World Revolutions, especially in Africa, getting sucked into the capitalist world by choosing one or another uh, state power vying for world domination. Um, so you had the, U the U.S. and, you know, its allies. You had the USSR, which no longer exists. And, you know, to some extent you had China, which was vying for world domination. Now, the particular form of that doesn't exist because we don't have this bipolar world with the USSR vying for world domination. But you do have all of these efforts to create a new multipolar capitalist world, you know, to, to, to forge some unity among the anti-U.S. capitalist powers. And a lot of people on the left, you know, are building those kinds of campaigns, initiatives, whatever. That, that, that's what they're for is, well, what we need is to, to ally with China as allied with this nation and that nation and to build up a whole counter. Instead of a, a capitalist world with one dominant capitalist power, they want to weaken the power of the U.S. by building up a, uh, an alternative pole of power. And it, I think it would be incredibly dangerous for the left anywhere uh, to get sucked into this. It's the same problematic that Dunyevskaya was, was, was dealing with in that sense, is how can you build up the independent revolutionary initiative of, of uh, coming from the masses, their self-movement, and not get sucked up into these power struggles of one or another capitalist or pro-capitalist force. So I, I think it's relevant for that reason. And when, when, when people look at like world politics today on the left, I mean, there's some conception always in mind. I mean, it's either the conception of, you know, an independent revolution from below on a, on a world scale, or it's this idea of uh, creating a multipolar capitalist world is the objective. It, it, there, there's something. One has to relate to that kind of issue. So the context of the pamphlet is that Dunia Sky is reflecting on the anti-colonial struggles uh, that are, have been breaking out all over Africa and Asia on the heels of World War II. Um, the struggles that eventually led to the end of the European empires, you know, France, England, all these countries losing their colonies, and the rise of the third world, you know, so-called third world nations. We don't uh, hear that word used in the pamphlet, but I think it wasn't long after that 
that that, that term third world uh, was came into parlance. She's also uh, it's also the era of the revolts in Eastern Europe against the USSR. So Dunia Sky is looking at these struggles and wondering if they if these movements uh, from below can hew some sort of independent path without getting sucked into the gravitational pull of the two state capitalist, you know, uh, global poles of the U.S. or uh, Western Europe or, you know, the USSR. Um, with, you know, if, if they can escape the need to, like, ally themselves with these capitalist powers for economic aid or political aid or military aid, if there's some sort of uh, path forward for them. Yeah, I mean, there were an incredible number of revolutions uh, in Asia uh, and in Africa in the 1950s and, and, and early 60s. And, you know, of course, also in the Americas, there was Cuba, and then we, we had, like, the Bolivian Revolution. Some of these were revolutions against imperialism and neocolonialism in, in Latin America as well. And actually, you know, some of this continued even later, Right. So when she releases the 61 uh, edition of the pamphlet, she remarks that in the previous year there were 16 successful revolutions in Africa. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. And um, then when the 1984 edition comes out, <clears throat> she's talking about the uh, political situation in Iran and Grenada. So there were really just years and years of upheaval and revolution and a sense of things, these things were changing fast. And she also remarks about um, the solidarity that a lot of these revolutions got in the first world, these parts of the first world. Sure, there sure was, yeah. You know, but even even at the time, like regular people were not all that aware of it in this country. I mean, I remember uh, a woman who was uh, in the organization, and this was in the... Uh, in the 1980s, and and uh, she was asked, she, she's recounting it in the mid 1980s, uh, that she was asked to give a presentation on on this pamphlet. Uh, you know, she was a working class woman, and she didn't know this stuff, and she she spent her entire uh, presentation telling people that there had been all these revolutions in Africa and and, and in Asia. You know, which was news to her. It wasn't news to them. But it, just the very fact that that had occurred was like a big, big deal to her. So why don't we get into the substance of the pamphlet? I prepared 10 questions, and I don't necessarily know the answers to all of them. But let's work through them together, and that'll be sort of our game plan for the episode. So Dunyevskaya writes this, this pamphlet in 1959. And the title is Nationalism, Communism, Marxist Humanism, and the Afro-Asian Revolutions. Why do you think all these terms are there in the title? You know, she doesn't actually talk about nationalism in the pamphlet uh, specifically, um, but these are right. She talks about Pan-Africanism being the African form right, of nationalism. Right. I mean, there are these national liberation movements that have the potential to be truly revolutionary, to be a inspiration and force for a sparking global global revolution and. Um, She's, you know, exploring how they could burst beyond the bounds of just a purely sort of narrow nationalist politics to have some uh, real international uh, liberatory dimension. At the same time, they could be pulled into the Soviet orbit. And, um, you know, she doesn't think for one second that uh, that sort of relationship is going to be beneficial to the masses in those countries who are yearning for freedom and struggling for freedom. 
Um, it's you know the <clears throat> Stalinist Russia wasn't good for the workers in Russia, and it's not going to be good for the African masses either. I mean, the term Marxist humanism in the pamphlet, uh, I think, is there because she is a Marxist humanist for one, but she identifies um, this sort of uh, masses in motion and the creativity of mas- masses with Marxist humanism, the development of um, forces from below that uh, ceaselessly, ceaselessly strive to overcome their um, exploitation and oppression. So she's trying to work out all the things that are um, working against that sort of self-development of the masses, which includes not just the external forces, but the internal forces and the, the leaders of these movements, which often fall into an uh, administrative mentality and uh, think narrowly in terms of grabbing power and not self-development of masses. Oh, yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would agree with that. What we might be substituting today is not so much that communist term, but the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, or, or some other conception of creating a, an you know, alternative major cap, capitalist block. That, that might be the threat w- w- that comes from within the left that the revolutions face. The issue of nationalism still is something that is something that still comes up, right, in the left. You know, thinking like uh, support for like Palestinian nationalism and whether to the extent to which that is developed in a liberatory way or in like a reactionary way, the sort of nationalist politics. Oh, for sure. Right. I mean, what, what was, I think, kind of more characteristic of that age? You know, about 60 years ago when Donetsky was writing this, there was an attempt to have these national revolutions that had their own flavor that were either supposedly non-ideological or were just meant to be in some way an alternative to both private capitalism and to state capitalism. Even even Castro in, in Cuba originally, you know, tried to say that he was pursuing a third path. And, you know, that didn't work out real well. Um, you know, and that, and it was it was a big deal in in Africa and, and elsewhere. Um, people were were trying all kinds of things and trying to th- forge new ideological conceptions based on the indigenous religions and, and whatever it might be. So Dunyevskaya is talking about these external forces, the USSR and the, U- and the U.S. and the f- forces that weigh upon these countries and make it difficult for them to hew an independent political path forward. Um, but she also talks about internal differentiation in the country, um, mostly between leaders and the masses, and that this gap between the masses and the leaders um, has the potential to dampen the revolutionary potential of uh, these movements. So, w- but what is the source of that gap, and why is it so dangerous? Well, the source of the gap is, I mean, typically the leaders of third world revolutions were either educated in west or sometimes in the ussr they were very highly educated classic intelligentsia or at least maybe they had gone to like british schools in in their their country but they were very very socially differentiated from from the great masses of the people so that division is the source but then what you get is among the intelligentsia is she's always stressing, particularly in this pamphlet, they just lack confidence in, in the masses and the masses' ability to r- run their own lives. 
So they then think that they, the intelligentsia, the leaders, they have to be the ones in control and set the direction and in some sense use the energies and the fervor coming from below to further the direction that the leaders have in mind. Unlike Dooney of Sky, a lot of people on the left and the West were somewhat or very enamored with some of these uh, movements by the intelligentsia in Africa. And she sort of sarcastically quotes her former colleague C.L.R. James uh, when C.L.R. James is writing effusively about Nkrumah in, in Ghana. And she remarks in a footnote, talking about C.L.R. James's enthusiasm for Nkrumah, she says, quote, to end with Nkrumah as the representative of the new, the new is rather pathetic. There is nothing to add but to say with Hamlet, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. Um, you know, is it to say, <laughs> you know, look how far C.L.R. James has fallen. You know, why is it that Dunyaskaya and James saw this situation so differently? I mean, I think that's a really difficult question because uh, C.L.R. James's life is marked by immense inconsistency and massive shifts in either his political outlook or his uh, activity. You, you know, I mean, to take another example, he was always thundering about the workers. You know, they're, they're, they're united, disciplined, organized by the very mechanism of capitalist production. They're going to do it. They don't need any theory. They don't need this. They don't need that. And he's saying this in the 1950s and so forth. Uh, he, he goes off to uh, England for reasons we don't have to get into. He eventually comes back, and, and there he's involved with, you know, basically black nationalism or, you know, uh, pan-Africanism and, and black consciousness and stuff like that. He comes back to the United States, begins to teach in um, Washington, D.C. I mean, he has no relationship to the American working class anymore. I mean, he, he becomes basically a theorist of black thought. So he, his whole trajectory was characterized by massive shifts. But I think what was basically going on is you have to go back to, to the, the you know, he and Dunyaskaya and all of them were, were, were Trotskyists, and the Trotskyist outlook was initially, you know, and Trotsky held this to the end of his days, that the USSR was, was, was not a stable social formation, and that the World War would basically end in its destruction, and we would either have capitalism the world over, uh, dominated, I guess, by the U.S. and maybe, you know, Britain and France, you know, or we would have a socialist revolution. It, things didn't turn out that way. And you get uh, James Dunyevskaya in the early 40s already saying, look, this is a state capitalist society. It's not just some unstable thing. It's a new form of capitalist society. And, but it, it persisted, okay? It persisted beyond the war and there, thereafter. And I think that James fundamentally did not know how to deal with that problem. I, I think that's a lot of the, the split between James and Dunyavskaya ultimately comes down to this. As Dunyavskaya said, whoa, the, the, the way to deal with this is continuation of the world revolutionary perspective. There needs to be a world revolution, but you know, we, it's got to be against both poles of capital. It's got to be worldwide. And the only thing that is going to uh, make this happen is a unity that's not based in the unity of circumstances that people find themselves, which are quite different. She stresses that in this pamphlet, the unity is going to be a unity of ideas. It's new humanism. And James could not go along with that. 
And so what he began to do, and his co-thinker Grace Grace Lee Boggs, began to do, really starting in the mid-50s to the late 50s, is they began to look here, there, everywhere. When Duniaskaya says, the new, the new, you know, to call Nkrumah the new, that's really pathetic, they were glomming onto this, that, and the other, calling everything new. Like, that, this was going to be the new road forward. This was something unprecedented that was going to, you know, carry us out of the, 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 the crisis of, of, of the world. So that, I think, has a lot to do with the direction that, that, that James was going then. I mean, the other thing is that this George Padmore, who was a West Indian writer, James was also West Indian, there was a direct connection between Padmore and Nkrumah. Nkrumah was, you know, directly listening. Nkrumah was directly listening to Padmore, and Padmore was directly listening, I believe, to to, uh, James. So it seems that James thought he had some inside track there. But I'll tell you, I, th- I think, the, I mean, I know you're going to come 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 into it, but let me, let me ask you this question. I mean, Duniaskaya addresses not just the external forces acting upon these nations, but also the internal ones. So we've talked about the gap between the leaders and the masses. But then there are the issues of what underlies the perspectives of these leaders, right? What, why are they taking the road that they're taking? Why in particular are they thinking that they can't have the perspective of worldwide revolution from below with the people with their country, you know, uniting with the masses of other countries. What, what, what is weighing so heavily on them? A good deal of this pamphlet is, is devoted to, to that question, right? Yeah, you're talking about the need for economic development? Yeah. Yeah, well, as former colonies, these countries had not been, uh, had, had not undergone much substantive economic development. They were mostly used for their um, extractive industries. And uh, the new leaders of the countries felt the need to um, develop infrastructure and human resources and find sources of capital to invest in the country. And the most logical place to find that capital investment um, to to those leaders seemed to be to ally themselves with uh, the USSR or the U.S. or some country that could be a ally, or so they thought. Or so they thought. And and by the way, this is this is the other continuity between 1959 mm. and right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, okay, so so China is is growing like gangbusters, and there's been some development in the third world, but it the the development that we've seen in the third world is not really permeating through these countries. Their pockets of development. And I think, as everybody knows, there's there's hundreds of millions of people, billions of people who still live on less than, you know, $1 a day adjusted for inflation or $2 a day adjusted for inflation. There is poverty of a magnitude and a kind that just does not really exist in the countries like, you know, United States and United Kingdom and so forth. So so that, that, that all continues. Yeah, and decades later, a lot of these countries, they still... Uh, to, to the extent to which they've attracted foreign investment, it's mostly been for their extractive industries, the energy and other natural resources, uh, but not but not like the development of them as rival economic powers or the development that would just raise the general standard of living for people in the country. Right. So she makes this interesting argument. She says that, look, the first world isn't even capable of developing the third world, that they literally don't have 
sufficient capital to develop the third world. She goes into Marx's theory of the tendential fall in the rate of profit and argues that a society, you know, a, a global capital based on the extraction of surplus value is not capable of this sort of humane development of the third world that some people are hoping will happen. But one of the things that it's not clear to me from the way she's arguing, and maybe you can answer this, is, uh, you know, she says they don't even have sufficient capital or they're not capable of developing these countries. I mean, she's saying literally they don't have enough money to develop these countries or that they just, there's no incentive to develop these countries because there's no profit that they would get from um, this compared to other sorts of investments. Uh, It's the latter. I mean... Sky is through and through Marxist. You know? So she doesn't view capital as money and she doesn't view capital as means of production. Capital is self-expanding value, right? So it takes the form of means of production, it takes the form of money, but the, the purpose of capital is, is to expand value. So and, and anything that does not expand value is, is not capital. Right? If, it doesn't, if it doesn't generate profit, it's, it's, it's not going to be employed uh, as capital, you know, there's means of production, you know, and there's, you know, funds sitting around maybe, but uh, let me, let me, let me, give, yeah, let's go to a couple of her formulations. I think she does make it clear. Like on page 12 and 13, she says, in 13, she says, yeah. even in prosperous times, the advanced countries do not have capital sufficient for the development of the underdeveloped countries. Right. Okay. But look, look at the, the, the sentence before that and the sentence after that. She says, there isn't enough capital produced to keep the crazy capitalist system going with the self-same profit motive on an ever-expanding scale. Okay, so she's saying there isn't enough if, if, if the motive is profit, mm, I see. you know, and you got to increase the scale of profit. And then she says right after the sentence you quoted, so long as the motive force of production continues to be the accumulation of surplus value, even 24 hours a day labor still fails to create sufficient capital to industrialize the backward lands. So it, it's not that there is a lack of means of production. It's not that there's a lack of technological development in the first world. It's not the, the case that there's a lack of natural resources globally. What there is is a lack of profit to be gotten from Africa, you know, and from the poorer countries in, in Asia. Okay. The, the, the point of saying there's not enough capital here is a direct rebuke to all of the underconsumptionists mm. who talk about the overaccumulation of capital mm. and the need to find exports of capital and, and, and this is their whole understanding of imperialism is that the whole system is going to collapse unless you find markets in, 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 in the third world or whatever it might be. And she's just saying, no, we, we don't have overaccumulation, overproduction, excess capital. In terms of the way the capital system operates, it's the exact opposite. And of course, you know, of course, she's saying that the, the rate of profit, you know, has this tendency to fall. They, the core of uh, Baran and Sweezy for monthly review, big deal under consumptionist, was that that law is no, no longer operative. And because you have monopolies, you got, you know, just capitalism swimming in, in profit that it doesn't know what to do with you know it does it, it's it's got to reinvest it abroad okay that's really interesting because i hadn't made that connection to the underconsumptionist argument 
Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Should we move on to one of the other questions? Yeah. Why does Donetsky think it's possible to avoid or bypass the stage of capitalist industrialization in the third world countries? And is that question still relevant today? I mean, she's arguing that this could be possible if these if, the, if these movements from below were not dampened by the you know, intellectual leaders the, and, and, and political leaders in the countries, and if they had some kind of aid from workers in the advanced countries. She doesn't specifically say what exactly that aid would be. Maybe she means only if there were political revolutions in the first world. Maybe she means some other type of aid. It's, she doesn't actually say that I'm aware of. But and she's saying, you know, this is theoretically possible that they, they, you don't need to you don't need to go through some capitalist phase and some like mechanistic conception of the movement of history in order to have a socialist society. 
but it would require certain things to happen. And so she's trying to work out in some form of this pamphlet what would be required. Right. So one thing that would be required is that you no longer have capitalism where, you know, the ever uh, accumulating self-expansion of capital is the goal. Because as long as that's the goal and you can't make a lot of profit in so-called backward Africa or backward Asia, they're, they're not going to be developed. So you, you have to get rid of that and you have to get rid of that on a world scale. But this issue of this, you know, kind of static, cookie-cutter, mechanistic moving through stages of history, I, I think is very relevant because that has a long, you know, history within Marxism and, you know, Lenin fought the, the Rodniki, the populists in, in, in Russia, and they were arguing that Russia was not yet capitalist and it didn't need to go through capitalism. It could bypass capitalism and move directly to some sort of communal society based on the pre-given indigenous uh, communal form there, the mirror. Lenin fought them. Um, you know, one of his major works was the development of uh, capitalism in, in Russia, a tremendously important work. And Dunyaskaya, you know, even in this pamphlet says, look, Lenin was right about this. He fought them and he won, and he was right. Okay, so why does then Lenin begin to talk about countries being able to bypass this so-called necessary capitalist stage? And why does Dunyaskaya talk about countries being able to bypass this supposedly necessary stage. It's not that the, the capitalist development is unnecessary. It's that the question of development is, is a question on a world scale. It would not have been possible for human society to move to socialism without first having capitalism. I mean, you could not like move directly from feudalism to socialism. That would have been impossible. But it is a question of world development, not national development. And, and the whole problem of all of the people who get stuck in this, you know, moving from stage to stage is an acceptance of the national limitations. Once we do have capitalism and capitalist development, there is no compulsion that every country has got to move in lockstep in some cookie cutter fashion through all the, the, the stages exactly the way, like, Britain did and so forth did. As long as you've got a global revolutionary process and you've got the masses in the first world uh, helping to pull up those in the third world, those in the third world don't have to go through their own independent development through capitalism. You know, it's not a hard question and the only thing that makes it hard is this ideological blinder of everybody having, you, you can't bypass capitalism. And the only way to, to, to defeat that ideological blinder is to say, yes, but it doesn't have to be done by each country in isolation. She also talks about the role of the peasantry that's revealed by these colonial revolutions, that they're actually this force for revolution, and that this is like a new, a new element of the new stage of capitalism, that these non-workers are fighting against global capitalism and can be like an element of this struggle. And this is really different than the way we sometimes hear peasantry discussed by like Trotsky or other people on the left who dis have dismissed the peasant classes as just, you know, reactionary or not part of the forward movement of history. But then, you know, here 
it's obvious for everyone who's watching history unfold in the 50s that these countries full of non-workers who are, you know, a lot of them just subsistence peasantry are taking up arms and involved in these really inspiring struggles against the, the Western imperialist capitalist countries. Right. I mean, Trotsky had a very strict view. I mean, he was much more extreme than I think, you know, anybody was. Uh, I mean, Marx said uh, of all the, the other classes that confront capital today, the proletariat is the only truly revolutionary class, but he was critical of those who said that uh, took that to mean, you know, that everybody else is just one undifferentiated reactionary mass. He said that, you know, that's not the case. But I'll tell you, in 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 our in our day and age, yeah, the, the peasant movements have played a very big role. And when you, you understand Marxist humanism, you understand that what links the struggles is the, the humanism that pervades all of them. And it's not that they necessarily have any common economic interests. Although with, with the modern peasantry, a lot of times that, that is the case. You go you know, to countries in the third world and you've got people who you know, are working in the cities and then they might go back to the countryside part of the year. They've got relatives still in the countryside and, and, and so forth. So this whole idea of what, what is the peasantry and, 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 and what is the, the proletariat, it, it's, it's not like hard and fast. But, uh, well, look, you know, even, even uh, Mao had a very different position than Trotsky, but of course Mao's, you know, supposed love of the, the peasantry was really the love of his own peasant army, and his attitude to the peasantry was to control and subordinate them and shove them into so-called communes and make them work harder. You know, I, I, I don't know where or why really, you know, Trotsky has such a... I think it's pretty unique to Trotsky, this just dismissal uh, of the peasantry. I, I don't really know where, where it comes from. I mean, Lenin, for instance, didn't have that. Well, I mean, Stalin led brutal repressions of the peasantry in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, from forced collectivization to mass starvation to killing tons of people. Um, and Yeah, he, he, he loved everybody <laughs> equally, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, there was definitely... People in the Stalin orbit were very cool with just like killing peasants just on principle uh, anyway um there's a section uh of, of this pamphlet entitled the intellectual bureaucrats and the labor bureaucrats and the intellectual bureaucrats is her name for the the intellectuals who are leaders of uh, you know third world countries or revolutions or whatever uh and the labor bureaucrats being you know the trade union leaders in the advanced countries. She begins by saying the greatest obstacle to the further development of the national liberation movements comes from the intellectual bureaucracy, which has emerged to, to so-called lead them, and that in the same manner, the greatest obstacle in the way of the working class overcoming capitalism comes from the, the labor bureaucracy, you know, the union bureaucrats that, that, that lead it. Uh, and she begins, I think, to, to argue that these are really different manifestations of the same thing, you know, appropriate to different countries. It's the same kind of attitude uh, and the same kind of social force. It's an attitude of superiority to the masses, thinking that the masses are 
backward uh, and that they're, you know, this force to be led but not to be listened to and not to, God forbid, take direction from. Um, and the, the social role of these intellectual bureaucrats or labor bureaucrats, she says, is to control, the, you know, their so-called constituency. The job of the intellectual bureaucrat is to control the peasant revolt or any popular revolt prevent their self-development uh, and the labor bureaucrat is uh, there to you know do the same thing with regard to proletarian revolution and she says that basically they've got the same attitude as the totalitarian state rulers which she says uh, percolates down to the intellectual bureaucrats and she says this is why George Padmore admired the political genius of, of Mao. This is the same George Padmore who was advising in Kruma, and he admired Mao as against what Padmore called doctrinaire Marxism, which Duniaskaya says, what, you know, him opposing, quote, doctrinaire Marxism means him opposing principled opposition to unprincipled opportunism. So, yeah, there, there there's a lot of this leadership consciousness among the, the labor bureaucrats and the uh, the intellectual bureaucrats and basically, you know, whether they are in or out of power, if they're not in power, they view themselves as somehow under the right conditions, they're vying for power, they're in line for power, and it's not that they're uh, serving the impulses for power from below, it's, it's power from above to lead and really, you know, control the mass movements. Well, can we move on to the last question? Sure. Dunia's guy argues that there can be no independent path for these countries without the aid of workers from the first world. But at the same time, toward the end of the paper, she says, quote, it is a cliche of an utterly mistaken order to tell a people that has no working class to speak of that, quote, only if the proletarian revolution occurs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, she's saying you can't tell these people, oh, you can't have a revolution now because uh, you have to wait for the world revolution. So what is she trying to say here? Right. I mean, I have a view. Do you have a view of what <laughs> she's trying to say? I mean, I, I, I understand that it's you can't just tell people oh, you can't have a revolution now. You got to wait for the world revolution. That makes sense. Um, I also understand that objectively she's saying, look, these are not going to be successful as independent paths unless there's some other some kind of revolutionary activity to come to their aid out, you know outside of their countries um, I understand those two statements I just don't quite understand how they work together to form a larger or a more general idea of a path forward oh I think you do actually it's, it's what we've been talking about it, it's the world revolution wherein because there has been capitalist development there are some advanced countries, which if they do have proletarian revolutions, can help lift up and spur the development of the third world. It's because of that that the countries, it's not the case that every country individually has to move in lockstep mechanically through a capitalist stage. Okay, so, it, you know, only if the proletarian revolution occurs. There has been you know, it, 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 there's already capitalism. If you have a proletarian revolution, okay, um, in the first world, right, it, it, you don't have to have one in your own country, right? You're, you can be part of the world revolution 
which is, you know, proletarian revolution, peasant revolution, and so forth, right? But she says in the previous paragraph, the fact that there is there is no way out except by unified struggle with the masses the world over does not condemn the colonial and ex-colonial countries to inevitable capitalist development. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly the point. So, but if there's no if there's no world revolution, and they can't escape, you know, capitalist development without the world revolution, how does it not condemning them to capitalist development if there's not a world revolution? It's the the the, the failure or the lack of the world revolution that would be condemning them. Okay. Okay. Right. I mean, it, it, all all of this is an argument for why there needs to be the unity of the struggle for freedom in the advanced countries, you know, with the, all the proletarian demands uh, and the, the the struggles for freedom in the, the less developed countries with, with their own demands. She's saying there's no other way out. There's no way out via, you know, Maoism, no way out via, via any sort of religious you know, version of, of, of liberation, no way out, you know, by tying your fortunes to the, the capitalist West or the state capitalist, you know, uh, Russians, okay? The only way out is this world revolution. The only way out for the third world is to develop technologically, and that can only come via this world revolution. But it's not that these people have to wait for that world revolution to come and rescue them they can be part of the world revolution and indeed they can become catalysts and they have been catalysts of this world revolution okay that, that makes sense you know i mean they what, what they do energizes people the world over i mean I, i'll tell you as bad as the, the the south african blackface government is there was an anti-apartheid struggle it did succeed and when um mandela came to new york he came to harlem I mean, there was a mass outpouring, mass outpouring in Harlem. I mean, what goes on in these countries does energize people in the advanced countries. And it's not just a matter of sympathy. It's a matter of understanding that we really do have one struggle. And what what Dunia Sky is saying is missing is really taking that very basic idea seriously and building upon that and making that the foundation for theory. So, so the, nobody's got to wait, okay? And yes, there needs to be a proletarian revolution in order for the needed industrialization, you know, or technological advancement of the third world to take place so that people are not locked in such grinding poverty. But the masses in the third world can energize, can be sparks, you know, or as Lenin said, bacilli, you know, to, to the to the proletarian revolution. Is, is it any clearer now? Yeah, that does make more sense to me now. I think um, I was kind of reading her formulation there a little too narrowly. And I think this has been a good discussion. We made it through all the questions, and hopefully our listeners will be encouraged to read the pamphlet themselves. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 